Where Dreams Come From is a podcast featuring successful people from around the world who have pursued their dreams to arrive at a station in life. I'm your host, Sanjeev Chatterjee. I'm a professor of cinema and journalism, and in my creative life, I make documentary films. I started this podcast to explore what it takes for people to follow their dreams, even while being true to who they are, at least who they believe they are. My guest Ruth Chanoel's mother fled the oppressive Duvalier regime in Haiti and settled in Boston, Massachusetts, where Ruth was born. From all accounts, it was hard to be a single mother without knowing any English and never having had faced the brutal New England winters. Ruth, who learned Haitian Creole at home and English at school, became her mother's interpreter as she tried to make her way in the U.S. In the absence of money, the church was their sole source of solace and inspiration. In this conversation, Ruth explains her early influences, the discovery of words for the inequalities that surrounded her, and ultimately, as a woman of African ancestry, her deep desire to help others like her. Ruth Chanoel, welcome to Where Dreams Come From. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about where you began and your formative years. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and my family's Haitian. We're from Haiti, IIT. And, um, but my ancestors and my ancestry goes towards West Africa, Nigeria, and Benin. Where I began, it feels like it's important to name that where I began isn't just on the land too, right? Like the where I began feels like it's in a faraway place. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure out where I began in that way of like understanding that my purpose is much larger than the land that we're in. That's part of like my, my journey here is like to understand, okay, we're all like on a spiritual journey and we don't know where we come from. Like some people will say, oh, we come from heaven. Or some people will say, oh, I came from my mother's womb. And oh, sure, why not, right? But I think part of what we're here to do is to remember where do we come from and how do our stories connect. The early memories of being in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, what are they like? It's beautiful, right? It's very diverse. There's a lot of um, Haitian people. There's a lot of Jamaican people. It's very different from Miami. And it's also a bubble. It's also very much segregated where there's like populations that just live in certain areas. Um, I remember there was like periods when I was younger, growing up, where I would serve as like the interpreter for my mom. My language, my first language was Haitian Creole, and I learned how to speak English in school. And so I remember going to different offices and then talking to different people and then people would try to interact with her directly. But she would be like, no, speak to speak to my daughter, like interpret, like interpret this way. And then I would listen and then I would interpret back or she would say something and then I would listen to it and then interpret back to her. And for me, like those experiences were like one of the first signs that I was like, oh, okay, we're different. Life in school. What was that like? The school that I went to, it was English as a second language. So the classes that I was taking, like my first two years, I was in ESL classes. And then I started to pick up English. And I started to learn it. And 
I remember being in school and looking at myself and then looking at the other students. I began to like notice, like even in the playground, I would see that like some of the children had like different, like nicer clothes than I did, or they had like nicer sneakers or their hair was done a certain way. And I remember like asking myself, why, you know, like why, or like looking at myself and being like, why I have like something like this and they have something like that. And then children, of course, children are children. So lots of bullying, you know, but those kind of things made me just start thinking about poverty even though I didn't have the language at the time, because when I was growing up, I felt like we were rich. You talked about riches, despite having a consciousness of poverty. Yeah. I'm curious to know, what are those riches? We would go to church from, on Sunday, we would have church. Wednesday, uh, we would have Bible study. Saturday, we would have like a morning service, and then there would be something else that was like happening. And my mom is a very spiritual woman, and she was praying all the time. And so for me, the ability to like pray, to be able to enjoy good food, to be able to enjoy her company, even though she worked a lot, I always enjoyed being around her. That was rich for me. What is your earliest memory of having an aspiration in life? I remember one of my sisters, something happened where my, actually my father or my sperm donor, who at the time, I called him sperm donor for a long time, but my father, he came to drop her off. And that was the first time that I ever saw him. And I was 10. And I remember my mom telling me that, you know, he's, he's your father, but he doesn't mean good for you. He actually thinks that you're going to fail in life and that you're going to be a statistic. You're going to get pregnant early and that that was his prayer for you. And that became to be like my aspiration to like succeed, to like prove him wrong. What are the steps that it became more defined that I would do something this in my life to be, to be successful? I began to take school like much more seriously. I began to connect my academics with like my social life. What I mean by that is in the fourth grade, that was like my first political activism work. That's where my work began, where we were fighting against the equivalent of um, Florida's FCAT, so it was a standardized test. Um, and I remember the teachers rallying up, the students, the par some parents kind of being like, okay, do you all want to do this? And we literally walked from the school to the city hall and started to tell our stories. And that literally was an example for me of like, oh, I'm going to be something. Who encouraged you to, to become part of that movement against FCAT? Her name is Miss Kathy, and she was my teacher at the time. And I remember she sat all of us down and she was like, this is what we're thinking. This is already going to be happening with the teachers. Um, and this is what we're already going to be doing, even with um, the parents. And then they did like a kind of like a permission slip. It was like a field trip to basically get us to, to take home and to sign and and she really encouraged all of us. I remember us like writing signs and um, walking and feeling like really excited, even though even at that time I was like, OK, I'm kind of going along with the flow, too. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this for the greater good. Like it felt like it was like for like not just for myself, but for um, for nobody to fail. And your mother's reaction to this? My mom was scared. She was scared. I think she at the time was also trying to figure out what that activity was and 
afterwards she was like okay I guess if the school is doing it then that's okay you know but I don't think I don't think she at the end of it approved that it was like against the school system you know even though it was the people within the institution that were like leading it you know I, she trusted the teachers but she was scared like huh even now this work that I do now even now she'd be like huh oh my gosh and I understand why because of her experiences. And then high school? In high school, I also grew really depressed. Even though I was in this phase of doing a lot of things, I was also kind of like questioning myself. Like I was, am I going to succeed? Is this really going to happen? Because the classes got harder too. And I went through a, to a K through eight school and it felt like, again, a bubble. And then when high school came, it was like a big bubble that like I felt lost in. And I went into joining like different groups and clubs. But even then I was like, ah, oh, I got to like find myself. I asked questions. I asked a lot of questions. One of the things that happened in high school, though, in order to graduate, we had to learn how to swim. And I remember going to take a swimming test and I failed it because I didn't know how to swim. And I remember going in the water and kind of being like, oh, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. And then I got like the paddle and I was like kicking my feet and literally I let go of the paddle because I was like, oh, I can do this. I could do this. And then next thing I know, from what I remember, I like sunk. It was that risk to be able to say, okay, this is something that um, happened. That risk of like letting go of that paddle, you know, and being like, I'm going to try this out on my own. Even though I felt like I drowned, I overcame it. What were the central influences in college? I joined a sorority. I joined a predominantly black sorority because I was like, oh, I need to, I can't be alone here. It was, I mean, it was still four hours away from home. I ended up joining the Alana Caucus and I joined the Haitian Student American Association. Like I joined all these clubs to belong um, and to be part of sisterhood and to know that, that other people who looked like me would care and protect me on this huge campus. And what did you study? I studied social thought and political economy, um, and I minored in women's studies. My major is one of a kind. That's why I'm like, mm. <laughs> it's one of a kind, because that was when I first started to understand the world in a different way, because I, I learned a lot of theory. That's when I began to understand and get answers to my why. So all those questions that I had, it wasn't until college that I began to understand like, oh, okay, there's like a political economy. There's like, this is about economics. This is about um, labor. This is about making money off of people, particularly black, low-income people, immigrant people, women. What were you thinking about doing beyond college at that time? So at that time, even when I was younger, I always said I wanted to save the world. I know it was wild, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to save the world. I wanted to make the world a better place to live in. And when I got to school and I learned that there were many ways to save the world and that, in fact, I needed to kind of start from myself to understand my political consciousness, my social, and in fact, now like more of like my spiritual consciousness to elevate, to grow, so that way I can connect with other people who are either like-minded or I could help to shape and shift other people's consciousness. And that's what 
saving the world looks like. Your approach is fairly, well, it's not mainstream in terms of incorporating spirituality in betterment of socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Even in college and what I was learning, it was just social and economics. It was just even like political. Um, and I remember I was looking, there was like a pyramid that I was learning about of just like around capitalism, for example, that there's literally exploitation of people's labor and that some people are making more while others are just there to work and to make less. And all of that was around social construct, economic construct, political construct. And the, the spiritual was just church. That was just it. Like the end, I knew that church was like an institution, you know? Um, and so for me, it was, where's spirituality in that? Because I always, I felt like that was a very core value of mine, even outside of the church, growing up with my mom, that prayer worked. What were the concrete steps you took uh, to bring this kind of uh, confluence of economics, spirituality, uh, women's issues, issues of race, together. After college, I continued to build my cons consciousness by reading books. Um, one of my favorite, favorite books is the autobiography of Malcolm X. To like understand that like it wasn't just about economics of labor, but it was also around like race. And it was also his story, the places that I grew up, the things that I've seen, felt like, okay, I can understand him coming from like a really negative place to then changing his life to become an activist. That felt like it made sense. I could, res I resonated very well with that. So in the way that you define uh, spirituality, do you see it separate from religion? I do. I, I see spirituality more as when I see somebody that comes to me, before somebody comes here onto this earth, they're a spirit. They don't have a religion. When a baby comes into this world, you could be holding a baby. The baby has no religion, but yet they are breathing. They are um, breastfeeding. They are crying. And that is, that's, their, that's their spirit. And that's their essence. And that everybody has their own um, way of being and their own essence. And that is different from religion. Tell me about your present work and what you're focusing on and why. A lot of the work that I do right now is around healing justice, restorative justice, um, and teaching people to be able to like shift their consciousness. So I since have founded, well, I continue my organizing and activism because one way to change the world is to change the set of conditions. So. Um, activism does that very well by changing policies, whether it's within schools or with, whether it is within hospitals, whatever the policy. There's like a policy that is set in place that makes it, there's a, a law, right? So there's a law that's set in place that makes it that some people have or some people don't. Because of my personal experiences, it's led me to not just focusing on like the external activism, but to focus internal and external and to focus on like that like we can't we can as much as we want to right demand for other people to understand that black lives matter 
right? That's part of my work. We can and absolutely should um, speak on that the land is free and that, in fact, all, so many people died to keep this land the way that it is. So many Black folks helped to build this country. Um, so many women have fought, right, to be here, for us to be here. And at the same time, the way that I've experienced activism is that I worked so much and I wasn't taking care of myself. And so what led me here to do healing justice work is that I have to be able to find ways like self-care practices, wellness practices, as I'm build building political consciousness of myself and others to be able to be prepared to build like an alternative institution. So tell me about your organization yeah. and uh, the nuts and bolts of the work. Okay, um, so the organization that I'm serving um, right now is called FEMSAGE. Um, FEMSAGE in Haitian Creole, it means midwife. And um, it also means wise women. And so what we'll say is like midwives catch babies and FEMSAGE, we catch communities. And it is um, an organization I founded in 2018 for that simple f fact of like that we have to be able to like raise our consciousness to the point that we can practice self-care, community care, and fight for um, justice at the same time. And um, the way that we do our work is through doing different programs to fulfill our mission of uh, making sure that people across the African diaspora have all the tools, spiritual, cultural, political, social tools that they need to be able to take care of themselves and their families. And so some of the programming that we have is we have every month we have a full moon sacred healing circle where um, that space is, is a space for black women to be able to talk about their stories, talk about their experiences, build camaraderie, build sisterhood, and then to be able to teach one another different like healing practices um, in which they then go back and take to their own lives and to their organizations. And uh, can you explain restorative justice from your perspective? Restorative justice is an alternative to a punitive system. And so most of the time, a decision when there's like something that happens and somebody needs to be held accountable, um, somebody tells them what they need to do. And so whether that's in school, right? So in schools, how that looks is like students are suspended or arrested because there's like a policy that says, if you do this, this is the consequence, right? Um, whereas restorative justice creates room for accountability where the person who committed a harm or the infraction is part of the decision-making of like what happens and what does accountability look like. And so that's like the simplest way that I could share of like what restorative justice looks um, means. And in a lot of ways um, in our work, um, not just with peacekeeping, but restorative justice in a society, then would mean that there's like a lot of, there's like reparations, right? Um, there's a connection to land, connection to labor, and really like unpacking and debunking all of these policies or levels of oppression that keep people either fighting themselves, fighting each other. It is current to talk about systemic racism. Can you talk about your work in the context of systemic racism? Yeah, so... A lot of the work that we do is what we say is we center people from the African diaspora because one of the things that systemic racism has done is had a long-standing impact because of the transatlantic slave trade, 
right? And so the transatlantic slave trade, African people came from Africa. Some were already on this land, maybe across the Caribbean too, sure. There's an incident that happened. There's a slave trade that happened where black people were removed from their land and brought here to the Americas for the exploitation of labor. So their bodies were used for labor. And so now what that does to people is once you, leave, you move somebody from one land to another land, what that does is that that person loses their culture, they lose, part, they lose part of their identity, they lose part of, um, and many, many of our ancestors lost their family, was torn apart, black women, even men were raped, right? And so all of the transatlantic slave trade what it's done is that it's left an impact, generational impact, because we're, we're literally all just running DNA. We're like recycled DNA. And it's left this mental impact of like post-traumatic stress, right, disorder. It's left like a spiritual impact of like, what does that mean? Because they heard of like what was happening here, they chose to just throw themselves over the boat, right? They would rather like chose, they chose to like, throw themselves over the boat rather than to come here to be exploited. And so all of these stories are stories that are not really told, right? But we see it every day. We see it in the generational trauma where people are like loss of identity, loss of language, loss of culture, now are like trying to find out who they are. So could I say then that your dream is to reclaim the cultural and spiritual roots of the African diaspora in America. A shame. Absolutely. That's absolutely it. That is, I would say, the largest dream that I have. Ruth Janoel, thank you very much for talking with me. In my way of thinking, we remain accountable to ourselves for the progress we make in this life. Show up, work hard, get ahead, etc. The question, one that has been highlighted in more recent times, is how our histories, not just in this life, but generational histories handicap our ability to achieve our dreams. For those of us who don't worry about it that much, we are privileged. For those with histories of exploitation and exclusion, the question of erasing the burden of history is a real one. Today's episode was edited by Scott Albon. For Media for Change, I am Sanjeev Chatterjee.